Hello and welcome to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. The Fulcrum is the University of Ottawa's legendary English newspaper, produced on the University of Ottawa campus in downtown Ottawa, the capital city of the north on the Great Turtle Island. Today on this show, we have an interview with Robin Brown of 613819 Black Hub. He's here to talk about the budget for Ottawa Police Services, whether or not more police equals less crime, as well as some of the ongoing issues facing people of color in this city. We also have an interview with Dr. Gabrielle Bluendemers. He's a biologist based out of the University of Ottawa whose work focuses on reptiles and conservation. Dr. Blue and Demers' team recently designed turtle safe nets for the fishing industry to help provide a more sustainable approach for the fishing industry and to save the turtles that get accidentally caught and are killed during casting. And a feature interview with Janet Mark Wallace of Walkable Ottawa. She makes a case for the importance of walkability in any neighborhood. She's here on the heels of a recent opinion piece that appeared in the Ottawa Citizen earlier this week called Who Really Pays for Parking? But first, it's time for headlines. Today reading headlines, we have the Fulcrum staff writer, Desiree Nickfarjum, and the Fulcrum science editor, Emma Williams. Welcome to the broadcast. Sana Al-Mansur, the only candidate for the UOSU's equity commissioner position, received 1,139 votes approving her candidacy, with only 139 votes against. Chloe Bergeron was elected to the UOSU's board of directors for the Faculty of Engineering, while Harnit Chima was elected to the University of Ottawa Senate as the health science representative. With a 4.5% participation rate, the UOSU Election Committee Chair, Henry Mann, shared that the committee viewed the by-election as a success. For Mann, the success of the by-election was a matter of organization and meeting deadlines as a committee. Dr. Rachel Levine, President Joe Biden's appointed U.S. Assistant Secretary, is the highest-ranking openly transgendered official in the United States. Now... She has a new accolade as she has been sworn in as a four-star admiral of the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps. Levine will lead a team of more than 6,000 officers who respond to public health crisis and natural disasters. Before her appointment by President Biden, Levine served as Pennsylvania's health secretary and highlighted issues such as the opioid epidemic, maternal health, and immunization rates among children. Staff at the Gardery Bernadette Child Care Center, located on the University of Ottawa campus, have begun unionization efforts and are looking for support from the university community. Staff members Britt Griffith, Lauren Wing, and Yela Vojnovic say that employees are dissatisfied with how the center's board of directors have addressed their issues and concerns. These concerns included unclear bylaws, the aforementioned non-disclosed incident, lack of mental health support, and improper scheduling and staffing. The center's BOD has chosen not to recognize a union since the staff's application for certification was dismissed by the Ontario Labor Relations Board. Staff members believe that while they are not certified by the OLR, their union can still exist. 
GBCCC employees feel that the BOD has and continues to disregard the hardships they face every day working at the center. They do not feel represented in the decisions. A coroner has determined that racism was a factor in the death of Joyce Eshaquan. Miss Eshaquan died of excess fluid in her lungs at a hospital in Joliet, Quebec. Just before she died, she recorded a video of hospital staff insulting her, as they denied her symptoms and incorrectly assumed she was withdrawing from narcotics. In her statement, the coroner said that Miss Eshaquan died unnecessarily. She had a history of heart problems and was mislabeled as a drug user by hospital staff, with no basis or reason. When the coroner was asked, whether she thought Joyce Eshaquan would be alive today if she were white, the coroner said, I think so. University of Ottawa student leaders have expressed concerns with the framework of a newly proposed policy outlining student rights and responsibilities. UOSU executive committee members are worried that examples of misconduct outlined in the framework could restrict students' ability to peacefully protest on campus and criticize the institution. In particular, leaders are concerned with how the university will define a condition or circumstance which damages or threatens to damage its reputation as outlined in Example 2F. Consequences found in the framework for students found responsible for misconduct range from a written warning to the possibility of suspension, expulsion, or in the case of alumnus, the revocation of a degree. However, Noel Badiou, the Human Rights Office's director, says the goal of this policy is not punishment, but remediation. He adds that the framework is still in the drafting phases and many changes will be made following consultations with students. He clarifies that under no circumstances will students face consequences for protesting peacefully on campus or fairly criticizing the university. History has been made, and Jody Gondek is the new mayor of Calgary. She is the first woman to take the city's top job. Gondek was elected in Monday's election after winning the election with more support than any of the polls predicted. Jody Gondek will be replacing Nahid Nenshi. Nenshi was first elected mayor in the 2010 municipal election. In 2014, he was named best mayor in the world and beat out 25 other finalists. Jody Gondek, the mayor-elect, was a city councillor first elected in the last municipal election. She is coming into the role during a time of economic struggle and a high downtown vacancy rate in a province that has been ravaged by the fourth wave. Dr. Tracy Valancourt, a professor at the University of Ottawa, has released her research on the longitudinal relationship between perfectionism and academic achievement in adolescence. The study allows for a better understanding of this concept with more extensive data. The study followed participants from grade 5 throughout their adolescence. Valancourt found that the pathway was from achievement to perfectionism and not from perfectionism to achievement. Valancourt believes that if we reframe the conversation around success and what success means, we will be able to change the relationship between high achievement and perfectionism and in turn reduce anxiety and depression.
When you hear that beat, it means we're going to talk about the police. Ottawa Police Services is getting ready for their annual budget increase. This in spite of a one-year anniversary of the passing of Anthony Oust, who died after falling 12 stories from an Ottawa apartment building in a police incident. Also earlier this week, former police officer Jesse Hewitt resigned. Jesse Hewitt was facing a disciplinary proceeding over his conduct when he would arrive on duty to police calls. Hewitt, on multiple occasions, would livestream individuals in distress and with mental health issues, mocking them over his social media platforms. Though he already pleaded guilty, his resignation means that he will no longer be disciplined as a police officer. Here to talk more about the ongoing issues with Ottawa Police Services and explain why more money doesn't mean less crime from 613-819-BLACK-HUB is Robin Brown. Hello, Robin. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. No problem, Damien. Uh, Can you tell me about Black Hub Noir? Yeah, the 613-819-BLACK-HUB. hub uh, we've been around since December of uh, 2017, and we focus uh, exclusively on issues of systemic uh, anti-Black racism. So that means in systems like the police or the education system or healthcare system, that kind of thing. And is Ottawa Gatineau a safe city for Black people? Mm. <laughs> uh, a safe city for Black people? Um, well... It has issues for sure. So Ottawa Gatineau, like the rest of the country, has an issue with systemic anti-black racism, as as has been acknowledged by the uh, prime minister in terms of the country. So uh, so yeah, and we we see that here. Uh, In particular, it it comes out well in all the systems, right? That whether we're talking about housing or employment, there's an issue. Uh, But we have a uh, and we have the same problem as a lot of cities do with police, right? That we see the 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 systemic anti-black racism coming out there in terms of, um, well, you know, the disproportionate um, impact on uh, black folks of uh, whether there's being harmed or being killed or being incarcerated and not just black and indigenous folks, by the way. Can you tell me about the ZAP campaign you're doing with Surge Ottawa? Yeah, sure. So Surge being standing up for racial justice, right? So they're a a group of uh, well, white folks who it started in the states and and then in the U.S. and been, I think there's like 46 chapters down there, but uh, the Ottawa chapter is just only the second one in Canada. And they um, what they do is they 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 are dedicated to helping getting white folks to help out black groups, right, and indigenous groups. So um, so they are helping us with our, our what's called our Our Fair Share campaign, which is a campaign to freeze the Ottawa Police Service budget. Right. And when they say freeze, meaning meaning just don't give them doesn't mean at this point eliminate the entire budget, which is like three hundred and seventy million dollars. We're just saying, hey, this year, don't give them an extra 13 million like you give them every year. Right. So freeze the budget. So so, so the Zap campaign is um, uh, specifically it's in order to, to freeze the budget, we have to, to go to the people who have the power to do that. And that in, in Ottawa, that is the Auto Police Services Board. So. Um, yeah, so people from Surge are actually um, every week they're getting on the phones and on the on the computers and they're sending emails to the councillors on um, uh, who are on the uh, Ottawa Police Services Board, which is in this case this the board has seven members and three of them are city councillors. And there's uh, Ross and King are our only 
our first and only black city councilor, Diane Deans, who's the chair of the board, and then Carolyn Meehan. So, um, yeah, so our other, the people are just every week getting on there and sending the message that uh, we want to freeze the budget. And, and basically, the message is, look, all the evidence and research shows that in order to really reduce what we call crime and make us all safer, you want to invest in things like mental health supports, housing, employment. This giving tons of money to the police just creates this vicious cycle, right, where it's like they give all the money to the police. The underfund things like mental health supports. Therefore, people go into crisis. So then you get somebody like running around the street, and then people go, "Oh my God, we need the police." So the police go, "Look, you see, we need more money." So they give more money to the police. It seems that, that this is the vicious cycle, right? So we're, we're, we want to interrupt that cycle. And, um, and I gotta say, you know, it's uh, things are looking pretty good right now. We managed to get police out of schools here in Ottawa, which is a big uh, thing that nobody would would have thought possible two years ago. Now. I wanted to touch a little bit more on the budget. Uh, yeah. How much money do the police get, and what have those increases been like every year? Yeah. So basically, every so uh, what they usually get is a, is a three percent increase in the budget, right? So last so last year that amounted to thirteen about thirteen million dollars, right? And th- this year they were asking for, uh, well, they were they're, they're, they're as you know they're in the process of creating their budget. But there were suggestions that they were going to ask for a very similar thing. So around a $13 million increase on top of, of a budget that in total last year, I think it was $370 million. And so what are the results of these budget increases tell us? Do we get less crime? No, no. And, and you can, and, and, and don't, and you know, this is not just me saying this, like the, 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 the statistics on the auto police services own website show that there's absolutely no connection between giving the police more money and crime going down. Like if you look over over time, like it, it's kind of sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. There's, there's no relation at all, right? The, but the the one relationship we do know, like again, is that over many, many years, giving all this money to the police, what it does do is, is it definitely means it's not going to all the social services that actually do reduce crime. So on, you know, over the long term, it's basically leading to an increase in crime, and hence that's why the police say they need more money. Now, it's just past the one-year anniversary of the passing of Anthony Ost. Yeah. What do we know about his death? Well, one thing we found out recently is that the Special Investigations Unit that investigated the, you know, the police who were, were there that day found them uh, not guilty of any criminal charges now and actually i'm, I'm going to be speaking at the auto police services board next meeting and i'm going to bring up the fact that this was not surprising to us and it's part of the problem the problem is that the the, the things that the police do that cause harm and actually end up with people being killed aren't actually illegal right so what so what the, the siu's finding was completely correct the police didn't do anything illegal and it led to this guy being killed. And if you look at the report, it said they quote the officers going, "Yeah, you know, we figured that you know because he was on the twelfth floor, he wouldn't jump, right?" And and this and and they, and it's perfectly legal what they did. So this is this is exactly the problem, right? So, it, how is Anthony's family doing? Good question. I, I actually I, I am not have not been in touch with Anthony's family, so I I, I don't know. But I would suspect. Well, good question. I, you have to ask them for sure. But, you know, I, I, again, I, one would assume not that well. But. Now, Ottawa police officer 
Jesse Hewitt mm. resigned earlier this week after an ongoing investigation into his poor conduct. Yeah. What does this resignation mean for accountability? Well, you know, it uh, doesn't mean, well, it's good that the, with one officer was held accountable. That is good for sure. Um, but, you know, certainly the, 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 the police, uh, I suspect will frame it as hey, you know, he's one bad apple and you know, other than everything's great or, or they always frame people like that as one as bad apples, right. In, in an otherwise good police force. And it's that narrative. We definitely want to challenge that, that no, the problem is actually that we have a, the, the tree is rotten and it's producing as most rotten trees do rotten fruit. Right. So, um, but you know, it's always good when, when a police officer is held accountable for, uh, again, as, as we, well, as we just saw in the case of the officers in the case of Anthony Oust, they couldn't be held accountable because the way the system set up what they did, it wasn't illegal. Right. So, um, at least in this case, I guess what he did obviously, well, not absolutely illegal, but clearly broke the rules and, and, and he, he was held accountable. And that's always good to see. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Uh, yeah, just to, you know, just to re- repeat this, 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 uh, to make, make, just to make people recognize or recognize that the, the, the police create this, this, this narrative, this idea that there's all this crime out there going uh, up and, they, and it's not, first of all, it's not even true, right? That the, 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 right? Um, and then, and that, the, and that, and then the second part of that is that they, what they do reduces the crime. That's definitely not true, right? So, so they're getting all this money. Right. And not actually doing anything to keep us all safer. So, hey, why not take that money and, and put it into the things that do keep us all safer? But also and, and that includes the, the number one thing that the majority of people in Ottawa actually kind of across the board, everyone cares about. And that's traffic. Right? The, 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 the traffic issues are like the number one issue. And again, that's the, the, the police getting all those money is 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 uh, meaning that's not going to things that are actually uh, address traffic issues, right? Like, cause, cause, cause the, the, the cops don't do that, right? The cops aren't, aren't, aren't first because it's not, anyway, they're, they're not, they're not an effective, um, uh, uh, deterrent because you can't, you can't have, right. There's not enough of them right, to, to be out there doing, right. Um, actually having an effective impact on, on traffic. So they, they, they could take money from the police budget and put it into like simple measures that really, uh, address, uh, you know, again, traffic issues again, but also housing issues, mental health issues, and that would really actually uh, keep us all safer. Awesome. Thank you very much, Robin. No problem. Emma Williams is our science editor, and here she is now. Hey, Emma. Hey, Damien. What's new in science this week? So this week, I interviewed with Gabrielle Bruin-Demeau, who is a professor here at the University of Ottawa. They teach within the Faculty of Science. And uh, today we talked about his research, uh, his work with reptile conservation, and cool lizards. Oh, cool. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, enjoy. Gabrielle Bruin-Demeau. I always say I'm a reluctant conservation biologist. It's sort of... I was interested in, in reptiles, and they're all species at risk, so I got to do conservation because of that, not really because I wanted to do conservation. And um, the whole reptiles business, 
I've always been an outdoorsy guy. I spent all my summers outside. I wanted a job that would allow me to be outside a fair bit, and I'm interested in the natural world. And so that, for me, that was the motivation. I, I, I like figuring out how things work in nature. If I was, you know, interested in, uh, you know, engines and stuff, I'd probably be a mechanical engineer. But I just and happened to be, yeah, more interested in the natural world than, than human-made machine. I kind of want to ask a lizard question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so like, what is a lizard? I know they're reptiles, but they have legs, so they're like not snakes. Well, snakes are actually a specialized lizard. Really? Yeah. So snakes are more closely related to. Um, monitor lizards, like varanidae, like the, the things you see in Australia, than to other lizards. So they're actually, snakes are just a specialized lizard. Wow. And together they comprise a group that are called squamates, that comprises like, yeah, all lizards and, and snakes. But really snakes are, are one branch embedded pretty far in there. So, because they're also legless lizards, so being yeah. without legs is, is not unique to snakes. But so it's, yeah, snakes are basically a specialized group of lizards. Okay. Even though they're they're clearly an evolutionary radiation. Like from that common ancestor, they created, there's nearly as many snakes as lizards as a whole. So okay. even though it's a branch. Interesting. So I want to ask like, what's your favorite lizard? I have several, but my favorite, I don't have a picture this. It looks a bit like this one. It's called a mountain spiny lizard or yarrow spiny lizard. And it lives in beautiful uh, um, sky islands in the American Southwest and Northern Mexico, and we've worked on it a lot. And, uh, they're locally abundant, so they're cool to work on, they're easy to capture, and they're in beautiful mountain chains. And I took a course as an undergraduate, it was called Desert Ecology, and I remember mm. going to that mountain chain when I was yeah, probably about 20, and seeing those uh, mountain lizards and thinking, oh, these are very cool. And uh, yeah, I ended up working on them eventually. So what are your main areas of study? So I do mostly fundamental ecological research. And the, the big question you're trying to ask is, or resolve, is what di dictates spatial variation in the abundance of animal populations. There's a fair bit, of, fair bit of work done to look at what dictates variation through time. So why you can get cycles up and down through time. But our, our, our understanding of, of why things vary in space is much less advanced. And so that's what we try to, to work on mostly. So I'd say maybe two-thirds of what we do is sort of related to that. I, I have always done, it's less, uh, you know, less of a, not as big a theme in my lab, but I've always been interested in the uh, evolutionary maintenance of polymorphisms. So when you have polymorphism of color across space, it's usually easy to explain. Like there's micro adaptations to the local landscape. And so lizards that are on red rocks tend to be red and those that are gray on gray rocks tend to be gray. And, and that's fairly easy to explain. But there are many polymorphisms that occur within populations. So in one population, you'll have multiple color morphs. And that's, that's more intriguing because you'd expect selection to select sort of one optimal Phenotypes. So there's several hypotheses for why different phenotypes can coexist, and uh, yeah, we've been we, we have been working on that problem also. And then finally, because a lot of the things we work on are species at risk, we we do a fair bit of applied conservation work, where we define critical habitat as species at risk, or 
look at the effect of additional mortality on, on you know reptile populations you know, yeah the effect of roads or we've also done a big project on the um, uh, bycatch of freshwater turtles in commercial fishing nets there's, there's been a lot of work done looking at uh, bycatch of marine turtles in fishing nets but much much less in freshwater and people don't realize there's actually there's there is commercial fishing going on in freshwater and they do capture turtles and so we've we've worked to modify fishing nets and fishing methods to try to diminish the uh, the number of turtles captured in fishing nets okay that's really cool <laughs> so i was wondering if we could go in more detail in like all three of those aspects mm -hmm. of the research so starting with the spatial density what does that mean exactly um so so fundamental research is trying to understand nature for the sake of understanding nature. So they may, there's usually not, there may be applications down the road, but that's not the goal. The goal is to understand better. So we're, we're trying to understand better how animals distribute themselves through space and, and why certain habitats have more animals than others. So for instance, is it to do with, with we work mostly on reptiles, so it could be food abundance, but it could also be availability of basking sites, for instance, because they need to get warm to be active. So a lot of the work we do is related to that, so trying to figure out so is what are the driving factors behind the variation we observe across space. And there are conservation implications down the road. I mean, if you wanted to design a, a reserve, for instance, you'd want to preserve habitat where the densities are high, right? Not when the densities are low. So understanding what drives these variation through space also could allow you to make better reserves, for instance. Can you go a little more detail polymorphism? Yeah, so polymorphism, there's many forms. As I said, so in lizards, there's different color morphs that occur in, in the population. So you'll have males with blue throats, some with green throats, some with yellow throats. And, you, you know, why do they coexist and a prevalent hypothesis is actually that of um, what it's called frequency dependent selection so phenotypes gain a rarity advantage so when they get rare they're favored and when they become abundant they're less favored so that creates cycles of abundance where a phenotype increases so it's it's when it's rare it increases in frequency and then when it gets common then it becomes less advantageous and it starts to decrease until it's low enough, then it starts to be... So a lot, a lot of these hypotheses about maintenance predict cycles, that you, sh that you should observe cycles and abundance of the different morphs. So that's one. The other one is that it's... Uh, it's uh, have you ever heard of a triangle amoureux in French, like a love triangle? Yeah. In the sense that... So it's actually that blue is dominant over green for instance green is dominant over yellow but yellow is dominant over green over blue so that they're actually all dominant over one and not dominant over so that could also maintain polymorphisms so we've been trying to figure some of these things out but we've also been interested in special cases where the polymorphism occurs between males and females in which case it's called sexual size dimorphism so why are, for instance, females much larger than males in map turtles, for instance? We've done a lot of work trying to figure that out. And it seems that females are larger, much larger, like twi 10 times the mass of males sometimes. And, and not only are they bigger, but they have proportionally larger heads. And those bigger heads allow them to exploit food sources that the males cannot exploit. Mm. 
and we've shown that females with relatively large heads have bigger offspring. So it seems that it's a they're bigger because these these big heads allow to harvest more resources and convert them into body mass and offspring. You did talk about the you changed the fish nets. Can you? Yeah. Well, yeah. The, we've done a lot of applied conservation work, so that that's. I mean, each project is a bit unique. Mm -hmm. uh, so sometimes, you know, we've done work, for for instance, at Thousand Isles National Park, radio tracking turtles because they're interested in knowing sort of, you know, where do they bask, uh, where do they nest. So that, so it's quite descriptive, but that influences their management plans, right? Or they're not going to put a, a brand new big dock right beside a popular basking site because of disturbance. When they can purchase land, they could purchase land where the turtles are going to nest, that kind of stuff. So, or not put, you know, a, a trail right through the nesting site of turtles. So it has very applied applications when we do that. And then for the the bycatch project, this was a, a big project with, with lots of students where we basically tag, tagged along commercial fishers to see how they fished exactly, and then we. We bought the same nets and fished them the same way, and first documented just how many turtles get caught because the, they're not mandated to report bycatch for freshwater fishers. So we, we first documented the magnitude of the problem and found out it was big, and then we started experimenting with you know putting uh, vertical bars across the entrance of the net. So the fish, you know, they're they're flat sideways, so they can swim through bars, no problem. But turtles have to sort of go on their sides to go through bars. And we found that bars actually reduced capture rate for turtles a lot and not for fish. So that's good. And then we experimented with escape chimneys to see whether turtles could navigate their way out and they can. And we've also experimented with providing... A big thing is that turtles, when they get in, they drown because the nets are not uh, checked often enough. And turtles are not like fish. They need to get access to the surface to, to breathe. So we've also uh, pr uh, used nets, but but providing air spaces in them by putting a float in them, and that has uh, uh, prevented mortality. So then we made a bunch of recommendations to the Ministry of Natural Resources about how the nets should be modified and set in such a way that there's an air space for the turtles to breed and all that stuff. And some of it has been put in place, not all of it, because it, it makes setting the nets and, and using the nets more complicated for the, for the fishers and so they, there was some resistance in adopting a lot of these measures but some were adopted they, but the big thing they did is they restricted the fishing season outside of the main turtle active season so they, they used to be able to fish all summer long whereas now it's quite early in the spring and late in the fall so that has also reduced the number of turtles captured I was, I'm actually curious when like, we go to catch Dolphins, whales, turtles. Do they? Is it something like with their eyes they cannot distinguish like a solid background from like a net which has like different lines? Well, I can't speak to dolphins and the like. I don't work on dolphins, but turtles. Uh, it's the nets don't work this way. The way they work is that there's a really long lead that acts as a barrier. So it intercepts their movements and they can't go through, but they want to go this way. Mm -hmm. So they start following. The lead and the lead leads to actually a v-shaped lead that has a funnel in it and so they'll go in <laughs> so they get in the funnel and they can't and there's actually three funnels in the nets we use and so it, it sort of it's easy to move one way but then they get at the back and it's really hard to find the hole again 
Okay. To get back in. So what are some of the realities of research that maybe people don't understand? A colleague of mine compares it to running a small business, and it's a bit like that. There, <laughs> so there's all the, the 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 more glorious aspects of you know making knowledge progress and that's you know testing hypotheses and all that stuff. But there's also all the how am I going to fund all that stuff and you know finding the money and and administering the money like. You, I have 10, 12 people in my lab and they all need a salary, they all need money to do their research. So there's a fair bit of, uh, you know, we have trucks, we have boats, there's all kinds of equipment that breaks that has to be fixed and all of this costs money. And so keeping the whole affair afloat is a, is a big component that can be stressful uh, because the university is not going to bail you out if you run out of money. The only thing that the university provides me is this office an internet connection and a phone without internet and without uh, long distance calls. If I make long distance calls, I have to pay for them. That computer, I have to pay for it. So, so if you get in the hole, that's uh, that's a big problem. Yeah. So the students have to be funded. Their projects have to be funded. So there's a fair bit of uh, of admin behind running a lab. That's not the, the uh, romantic view of you know a scientist with a butterfly net just you know having fun in the field. Okay. Well, thank you so much for meeting with me. No problem, Emma. The City of Ottawa is unveiling its new official plan that will chart the course for the city's development for the next 25 years. Janet Mark Wallace is with Walkable Ottawa. Walkable Ottawa is an organization that makes the push for more neighborhoods to be walkable. The idea is everyone should be able to walk towards their daily essentials. She recently wrote a piece that appeared earlier this week in the Ottawa Citizen titled, Who Really Pays for Parking? Janet makes the case that just because you might not see a meter in a grocery store parking lot, you still have to pay for it, even if you don't drive. Hello, Janet. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, Now... Is there such a thing as free parking? Uh, Well, my op-ed of October 18th in The Citizen would say no. There is no such thing as free parking. I originally entitled it uh, Parking Lot Socialism, which I thought would get people's attention. I thought it made a funny image. But I wanted to encourage readers to consider that it does cost a lot of money to build and maintain parking lots. There's property taxes, pothole repairs, lighting, signage, snow removal... All this costs money, and when the parking lot is free, it's not the drivers who are contributing to paying these expenses. It's the landowner that pays for the lot, but he passes the costs on to the stores, and they pass it on to their customers. So if I can take a bit of an extreme example, a person who used Elmville Acres, which I talked about in my op-ed, if you use that as a park-and-ride and put your car there for 10 hours of the day and never shop there you wouldn't contribute a cent to the upkeep of the lot. At the other extreme, you might have a person that buys all of their food at Loblaws and doesn't have a driver's license. They would be contributing to the upkeep of the lot. And there's a 700-page book uh, written by UCLA professor Donald Shoup called The High Cost of Free Parking, where he points out that the wrong people are paying for parking across North America. And his suggestion is just simply to subject parking to the same user fees that prevail just about everywhere else in the economy, 
by charging for parking. So if I go to the grocery store and I don't see any meters in the parking lot, isn't that lot free? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And off the top of my head, like I can think of train yards, South Keys, Elmville, Billings, uh, they don't charge for parking. And I think it's probably the same everywhere outside of downtown. You can park for free. But that doesn't mean that the upkeep of the lot is free. It just means that non-drivers are helping to subsidize it. So people who are, are buying things at those stores are contributing to the lot. And it's a little bit like if a driver went to their 20-something minimum wage earning neighbor next door to ask for five bucks for the parking meter. We wouldn't do that, but that's kind of what we're doing when we demand that parking be free for all users and that the shoppers be the ones that contribute. So even when parking is free, the people who don't drive are paying for it? Yeah, they are. They're paying for it unwittingly through their purchases. And as the cost of goods continues to rise, as seems to be the case, one way that stores could keep their prices lower is if landlords decoupled parking lot costs from the rent that stores pay. This is one of the many insidious ways that non-driving consumers and taxpayers are inadvertently subsidizing our very expensive and wasteful car infrastructure. So what would be a better alternative to lot parking? Well, fortunately, over at Elmville, we are seeing a better alternative being built as we speak at the north end. A 10-story multi-use building is going up with retail on the ground floor and housing up above where there used to be just a parking lot. This is a very valuable intersection. It's one of Ottawa's major intersections, Smythe and Saint Laurent, and it's now being put to a much more lucrative use. A similar development is planned for the south end of Elmville. And I've lived in this area for 15 years, and I can say I've never seen a single car parked in the southeast end of the Elmville parking lot, not even on the Saturday before Christmas. The land was not doing anything. It didn't have cars on it. It was not absorbing rainwater, not sequestering carbon, not providing housing, not generating any income for the landowner. So the landlord has finally decided to put it to better use. So likely the spaces available to park in at Elmville will be shrinking, but it will also hopefully become a more fun and enjoyable place to walk to and to sit in. Right now, if you want to sit down on a bench and take a look at your library book and drink a coffee, there's nowhere to do that. And I hope as Elmville urbanizes, it will be a nicer place to visit and maybe even somewhere that people want to hang out in just for fun. Uh, If this happens, the parking supply will probably shrink and corresponding demand will grow. But in a capitalist system, when something's in short supply and high demand, then the price goes up. So it might become more expensive to bring your car to Elmville. But I don't think the owners of Elmville have a moral responsibility to provide unlimited parking to car owners and pass the costs along to the non-car owners. Parking should be subjected to the same pricing as any other product on the open market. Can you tell me more about Walkable Ottawa and the work that you do? So your listeners might be aware that Ottawa has been developing a new official plan, uh, which is going to be voted on in a week, but was many, many years in the making. This plan will govern how the city develops for the next 25 years. And Walkable Ottawa believed it was important to monitor how central walkability was to the discussion. So they formed in March of 2020, which of course everybody knows is right at the beginning of the pandemic. So all of our efforts so far have been online, but so have most of the deliberations of the official plan. So it's worked pretty well. So we have a blog that I've contributed to. 
and f which we are constantly searching for new voices across the city and across demographics to give perspective on improving walkability. Uh, we were also part of the People's Official Plan, which was a parallel effort to ensure that the official plan embedded issues like gender equity, affordable housing, food security, tree canopy, and the metrics for measuring these, the progress in these areas right into the official plan. And uh, right now, as we speak, again, there are a number of People's Official Plan motions before the planning committee, which we hope will bolster the efforts to deal with these issues at the planning level. And then I'll finally just talk about a project called Intensification of Ottawa Neighbourhoods, which we hope will provide modelling that will allow councillors and residents to see graphics of what a street would look like if it adapted for walkability. So people are justifiably concerned about the kind of change that will come by adding 400,000 people to our population in Ottawa, which is what the official plan projects. We think that proper modelling can give a better picture of how change could improve the neighbourhood rather than increasing the challenges in the neighbourhood. For example, many people are concerned that they don't want to see a dramatic increase in heights that are permitted in new buildings and they don't want to see houses that occupy the entire lot and leave no room for vegetation. So the intensification of Ottawa neighbourhoods modelling would seek to establish whether more housing units could be accommodated on a street without changing the heights or the setbacks or the amount of greenery around the house. This type of development is really untangleable from walkability because if you make more room for vegetation and more dwelling units, you have to sacrifice space that is otherwise going to storing cars. So a street with a lot of non-car owners would have to be would have to have a viable main street with useful retail, regular transit service, and access to city services like schools, libraries, parks, and community centres. For a lot of Ottawa's residents, it's difficult to picture such a transformation without picturing an increase in traffic and nowhere to park, but the whole point would be to make it unnecessary to own a car. So visual modelling becomes necessary to help people imagine that intensification could make a neighbourhood more fun, more interesting, more safe, more affordable and more inclusive. Why is walkability important? Well, eventually, we're going to run out of some of the materials that make car dependency viable. Whether it's gasoline, paving materials, ore that goes into making cars, rare earth elements that make up the computer parts, this stuff is not going to last forever, and it looks as though some of it is already starting to run a bit short. So I'm of the opinion that probably within my lifetime we're going to be walking more whether we like it or not. We can do it the easy way by planning for communities centered around vibrant main streets full of locally owned businesses catering to the neighborhood, or we can do it the hard way where we keep pleading with bankrupt governments to somehow keep our cars on the road as the costs continue to rise and rise and rise. But the good news is that walking has a whole lot of other benefits that we can tap into if we start to plan around the assumption that it's normal to walk most places. There's mounting evidence that physical and mental health improve exponentially with the amount of time we spent outside. Walking communities are by nature more inclusive in that children, teenagers, seniors and other non-drivers have the opportunity to participate in civic life without having to wait for a ride to the play date or the part-time job or the bridge game. Walkable communities tend to be safer as people get to know each other face-to-face -face and the opportunity for crime diminishes. And really, at the end of the day, even the most dedicated driver will admit that they will probably not miss the added noise, danger, and emission, emissions from cars uh, as cars travel through their own neighbourhood.
So there's a lot to be gained by working around walkability. Now, how do you score walkability? Well, our draft official plan talks about developing 15-minute communities where every resident across town would ideally be within a 15-minute walk of day-to-day necessities. So I would define this as groceries, pharmacy, hardware, post office, library, park, school. And I think actually Elmville is a reasonable example. You can't buy a washing machine or a hot tub at Elmville, but these are not day-to-day necessities for most people. So in my view, a 15-minute walking radius around Elmville is a 15-minute community already, but there's quite a lot of work to be done improving pedestrian and bike access from the the north and from the east. So people may live within a 10-minute walk, but it might actually be really quite dangerous and inconvenient to cross uh, St. Laurent or Smythe. So we do have some work to be done even there. Um, And I think there's a company called WalkScore that can actually give you an idea of the walkability of a distant community, but I know they've they've got their detractors because uh, the tools are a bit blunt if the person doing the scoring hasn't visited the community. And can you define intensification? Well, this is really the key question on which I think our whole civilization really hinges. We've got a growing population and we've got shrinking resources. So how do we plan for a less wasteful and more regenerative future? Uh, A lot of intensification in the 20th century was associated with height. Uh, Just add a lot of tall buildings in and um, that would take up less land space, so the thinking went. And so that's how you achieve your intensity. But I've been sitting in on Zoom meetings with my community association for a year now, and towers definitely have their detractors. And I think a lot of the misgivings people have about this kind of height is quite justified. So to me, intensity is not about how many dwelling units you can build on a square meter of land, but how the units are arranged in relation to everything else. So the proper mix of everything, buildings and vegetation, mix of ages, mix of incomes, and mix of functions. And one of the things that I found a bit frustrating over the year of talking about the official plan is that there is sometimes an assumption that there are people who like nature and people who don't. I've yet to meet anybody that doesn't want to have access to nature. So we shouldn't really talk about neighborhoods that have nature and neighborhoods that don't have them. And when a neighborhood has the right mix of activity, more people will want to walk, and this reduces the amount of space that has to be dedicated to cars, and then more residences and more economic activity can fit in. And a really excellent book on this came out in 2018 called Retro Suburbia by an Australian named David Holmgren. And it's actually something of a peon to the virtues of suburban housing. It, what's radical about it is that he suggests that we use our suburban housing for productive purposes, growing food, caring for elders and children, operating studios out of our garages for bike repair, pottery, haircutting, furniture building, small appliance repair, and other useful services. So much of the suburbs is deserted most of the week as people commute into town to access services, and he suggests that we intensify by commandeering our own homes to provide useful economic activity to the community. So to me, that would be really the genuine intensification And that's kind of a step beyond what the official plan has tackled so far. But I think we do need to talk about this because we talk a lot about the rising costs of everything and we don't necessarily see some of the resources that are right in front of us. And how can we grow our city and its neighborhoods 
sustainably. I think we have to repatriate a lot of our economic activity down to, right down to the neighborhood level. The era of government largesse and cheap overseas goods is coming to an end as far as I can tell. And as we've seen during the pandemic, it's becoming increasingly unwise to rely on overseas producers to supply us with our day-to-day essentials. This is the world that the, the People's Official Plan was attempting to prepare for, a leaner world where our food, housing materials, energy, and manufacturers may have to be produced closer to home. We may need to relearn how to repair and repurpose goods that we already have, build new stuff so that it will last, grow and preserve local foods, and even relearn how to entertain ourselves in a way that doesn't involve obscene energy consumption. Relearning the skills that our grandparents took for granted can actually be fun, challenging, and rewarding. What about walkable communities with wood shops, pottery studios, seedling nurseries, compost facilities, beekeeping, small theaters, bike shops, all of them able to equip us with the skills to make our own communities better? If we ever get out of the pandemic, I think people of all ages are kind of tired of living on social media and would love to come out and learn some of the skills in the real world with real people. And is there anything else you'd like to say? I think every community in Ottawa can evolve for walkability, right from our downtown high-rise districts to out to the rural villages. And the people who work and live in these places are our best advisors as to how to transform. And there's a lot of ways to upload your perspective to the decision makers. You can go to the Ottawa Official Plan website and sign up for opportunities to give feedback. The zoning bylaw is only going to be starting once the official plan has passed. So at that point, we need a lot of local people to give feedback on how to make their neighborhoods more accessible to everyone. I'd also recommend joining your community association. Uh, there's many councillors across the city that have really productive relationships with their community associations, and this is a great venue to feed good ideas into the city council process. We also have Walkable Ottawa, Ecology Ottawa, and the People's Official Plan that are helping to sort of interpret and encourage participation on how the OP is proceeding and where the opportunities are to make citizens' voices heard. And finally, as I was preparing for this, I thought I'm going to give myself some homework here, which is to maybe post a bibliography of urban planning books that were written for the non-specialist um, and maybe post that on the Walkable Ottawa website because really all of North America is going through similar challenges at the moment, trying to modify this extravagant, wasteful urban planning of the late 20th century into something we can live with in more constrained times. So some really encouraging work is being done across the continent, and the more that Ottawa residents are aware of it, the more we can build on success from other places. Thank you very much, Janet. Thanks so much for having me. It was a great pleasure. Here with the latest of what's happening with the GGs is the Fulcrum Sports Editor, Jasmine McKnight. When I say things really went in favor of the GGs this week, I mean it. The women's soccer team started the weekend off with a 12-0 win over RMC. Emma Lefebvre led the team with four goals, while Cassandra Provost contributed a hat trick. Just two days later, the GGs were back on the field against Ontario Tech. 
The 3-1 score keeps the GGs undefeated. Their next matchup is Friday night against Queens, another undefeated team. The highly anticipated game will be played on Matt Anthony Field at 7 p.m. The rugby teams closed out their regular season games this week. The women's team finished things off with a 24-12 win over Concordia, while the men defeated ETS 24-17 in a huge comeback victory. The women earned themselves a semifinal spot, meaning they have the week off to see how quarterfinals play out. The men have also clinched a playoff spot with their 4-2 record and have to wait for some more games to play out before knowing their seeding heading into conference playoffs. Playoffs will get going on October 30th. Unfortunately, the women's volleyball team did not get to play their scheduled home opener. The game was postponed due to health and safety precautions. Thankfully, the team will be playing in Montpetit on Friday at 7. In club sports, the Canadian Ultimate University Championships took place over the weekend. The men earned a bid to Division 1 and ended up placing 8th in the country. The women came out on top in Division 2 in a universe point win over Guelph. My camera roll is filled with photos of my team and I with the trophy. We're heading into reading week now, a well-deserved break for students. Once we're back, we'll have exciting playoff action on the rugby field, and we'll get to see the hockey teams and basketball teams start off their seasons. Until then, have a great week and see you soon. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to everyone involved in this week's show. Anderson Cooper better watch his back. Because we got Desiree Nickfarjim. Forget Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson. We got Emma Williams. And why would you watch TSN when you can listen to Jasmine McKnight? Music and sound design by Cameron Rankin. He did that police song you heard earlier in the program, too. You've been listening to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. See you next week.